That is it. Thank you. How are you today? Great worship team. I mean, great funky bass. A drummer so awesome, they have to put him in a cage. Uh, so uh, through the years, as, as you heard him say, I actually grew up going to Covenant Church over here right across from Mission High School. Uh, this is home territory for me, so it's a real privilege to be back here and to be part of this through the years uh, in the past. Before you had the upstairs part, I have attended in the past downstairs for various occasions, so it's great joy to be here again. And I'd like to take this time and uh, open with a word of prayer as we get underway. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much that you are here with us. You are here to share in the life of your people as we share in your life that you have given us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we are not alone in this journey. We are not alone in this world. We are not alone in this universe, but that you are with us every step of the way through every breath we take. We thank you for that. And we thank you that we can be here together in this beautiful city. And we thank you that we can be part of the life of Christ together. And I pray that as we are here now in this time, I ask that you would touch us in a great and powerful way this morning as we seek to share this time together, to share your word, and to partake of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's passage, we're going to be going through a passage in the book of Ephesians, and to get it set up, I call it the Apostle Paul's unusual prayer, and it's kind of an unusual prayer, that's why I called it that. And I want to talk about an unusual prayer that I had. It took place right here in this city. Uh, As I said, I lived here in the city for off, uh, off and on different times, and I attended City College in San Francisco for a while, and I was living right by the church over by Mission High School. And so I used to take my 10-speed. For you younger people back then, all we could work up was 10-speeds. We didn't have 18-speeds. And I would take the bike back and forth. And I was coming back one day, coming back from City College to go back home. And I used to take this kind of back way. And coming back from City College, I was coming down Church Street, down behind Dolores Park. Now, those of you, if you travel into the city from the suburbs or if you're not really familiar, I have to describe this just to be sure, so we're all on the same page. Church Street behind Dolores Park there has got an incline of about 90 degrees. It is a steep ride down. And down the side of Church Street, right behind Dolores Park, is the J-line for the Church Street streetcar. And it comes along parallel, and then at the foot of the hill crosses over and goes on to Church Street. At the foot of the hill is 18th Street. And it's got the bus line cutting that way. So you've got Church Street going this way, J Street Church Line going this way, and then you have the 18th Street bus going this way. And at the corner is Mission High School. So I'm coming back roughly around 2.25, 2.30 in the afternoon on a school day on the bicycle And I'm coming down that hill, coming down at a really good clip, and I put on my brakes, and I watch as my front brakes pop right off. I do not have a lot of time in this moment, and I had to pray quickly, and I said, Lord, I need a green light. I need a green light like I have never needed it before. Dear God, now it's time stretches when you're in crisis. So I was praying fervently and have seen forever. I really, please, Lord, please give me a green light. And he did. 
And then at the other side of that, it goes up another hill. So I went up that hill, slowed down because I had no brakes, made the U-turn, and then went back up the hill to find my brakes. It was an unusual prayer, but in the setting, yes, it makes sense. You know, I don't generally drive across San Francisco and pray for a green light at every intersection. But in that day, Lord, please give me a green light. An unusual prayer. Paul has an unusual prayer today in this first chapter of Ephesians. Let's go ahead and let's go to it and check it out. We'll start with the first couple of verses, verses 15 through 17. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So let's kind of get this set up. He says, for this reason. Now, we've come kind of midway, so what's the reason? He says, for this reason, but it's ahead of these verses. For this reason, he says, because I've heard about how you've really taken to the gospel, how you have really adopted it and lived it, and it is wonderful. He is excited because he's been going around all around the Roman Empire preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and it doesn't always take hold. Sometimes he has to run for his life. Sometimes it goes great. In this case, it was going great, only he wasn't there. He was hearing about it, but he's praying for them, and for this reason, he is giving thanks for their response for the gospel. He is excited. And this is where it starts hinting at why it's unusual. He says at the end of these verses that we have before us, I pray that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So I want you to pause and think for a moment why is this kind of unusual? Because he's writing to Christians. These are people who have already come to Jesus. Why does he have to pray for wisdom and revelation of him? And this is the beginning of the hint of what's going on. It's because it's just the beginning of knowing Jesus. It's just the start. They heard the stories. They heard the gospel stories from people. They had the teaching, and they had converted, and they were following and they were believing, they were participating, and Paul says, but I'm praying that you will have revelation of Jesus. And this is paralleled in another uh, section of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we know as the love chapter. Towards the end of the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, he has a line there that really applies here. He goes, for we know in part. We know Jesus, but we only know Jesus in part. We are only getting started. And no matter how amazing your experience coming to Jesus might have been, no matter what your conversion experience is like. Now, I have people that I know in my life who went to a Bible study to really tell them off, to tell them that they're fools, and he was really going to put them in their place. And he walked up, this is my friend Ron, and as he went to this Bible study to really show him something, the door opened, and when the guy opened it and said to my friend Ron, what can I do for you? My friend, the bitter, angry atheist said, I want to know Jesus. It was not to start he was planning to have at that Bible study. 
I have other people that I know who have been in church all their lives and, not, and cannot tell you a single fascinating story of miracles or anything interesting, but they're faithful. They believe, and they are wholeheartedly following Jesus. So some people have fantastic beginnings, and some people just keep going on and on faithfully. And it's not that there's a right or wrong way to do either of these. It's simply we all have different experiences. Getting back to here, Paul says, I'm praying that you will have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of Jesus. And that gets us underway. It kind of hints at the unusualness part. In the next few verses, then, we go on, right? There we go. (laughs) I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So, first off, the eyes of your heart. Well, I know heart surgeons. There aren't any eyes there. Why why does Paul come up with this phrase? Because the heart is the seat of motivation. He says, your heart needs to be touched by a revelation of Jesus down deep where you need to sense it, experience it, and know him. I'm praying that that will be enlightened. Your eyes. What does he want them to see when he makes this prayer? He wants three things for them to see. He wants them to see the hope of their calling, the riches of their glory that given to them by Jesus, and the surpassing power of God. These are the three things he says, I want the eyes of your heart to see these things. Let's take them one by one. First of all, the hope of calling. Jesus beckoned you to, call, to come follow him. This is hope because no matter who you are in life, no matter how marginalized you have been, no matter where you have come from, no matter how clean, no matter how dirty you are, Jesus has beckoned you to come. He wants you at his side. He wants you there with him. There's hope in that because if Jesus wants us that way, what else does it matter how everybody else reacts to us in life? The Lord of the universe wants you at his side. There's hope for us because of that. The second thing, the riches of the glory. And it's a long phrase, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. But the glory is what I want to focus in on. And it's simply this. I wish I could. There's a whole other sermon on Romans 8 that really ties to this. But I'll have to leave it there for now. But in Romans 8, if you were to sum up the one section that I'm thinking of, It's this, that all of us, those of us who are in Christ, have no idea of the glory we are on the road to. We, who are in Christ, are on the path to glory beyond comprehension. And whatever your experience may have been to coming to Christ and whatever sense of power and love and grace and mercy, it may be the most wonderful conversion experience. No matter if it's that, the glory that still awaits for us is beyond comprehension. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, I wish the eyes of your heart could see the glory that is coming your way. Given to you by Jesus then the third thing, all the power 
that made the universe is being expended on your behalf by God. Consider that. Um, if you want to dip into Mr. Science for a moment. You know, we have the theory called the Big Bang Theory. And, you know, it's all sorts of theories, but just to beg with, uh, uh, kind of ride with me for a moment here. However it worked, but they have this idea of the Big Bang, and they say it all happened with what they call the singularity. I can spell it, but besides that, I couldn't tell you much more about it. And it's something the size of an atom was exploded, and that was so compact, so dense, and exploded and expanded all over. And when you see atomic weapons, is a similar thing, is that they took an atom, split it, and everything that was in the atom was spread out and, you know, explode. So, and so there's this idea that there's a lot of power packed in there. But it also makes me think that, you know, sometimes in life you get frustrated and you say, you know, I could just explode. Be careful. <laughs> but the power that made the universe, however he did it, that power is being spent by God to your benefit. Those are the three things Paul is hoping that the eyes of their hearts will see. The hope, the glory, and the power. Now, and a point I want to make right here is that what he is talking about. Now, there's a great song. I love this song, and I'm not putting it down. Um, there's this worship song that we often sing, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. And we always say, I want to see you. Great prayer. Not knocking that at all. But that's not what this verse is saying. What Paul is saying that opened the eyes of your heart, he's saying so that we can see what we are in Christ. That we can see who we are in Christ. That is what he's praying for. He's saying, I'm praying for the eyes of your heart to be open so that you could see who you are and what Jesus is doing in you and is going to do with you in eternity. That is what he's pointing towards. That is what he's saying. I want the eyes of your heart to be open to see this amazing future that he is bringing about in Christ. That is what he's pointing towards. So how did we begin? The previous little section we said, Paul was saying, I'm praying for a spirit of revelation of Jesus. In this section, he's now praying, I want you to see who you are in Christ. The body of Christ, the church. And we're going to come back. This is the main thrust of the prayer. This is the main thrust of what we're getting at. But let's move on. We'll go to the next part of the passage here. The second half of verse 19 through 21. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. There's a lot of words, a lot of lofty ideas. Let's take them on one by one. When he says these, he's talking about hope, glory, and power. The hope, glory, and power have been brought about by the working of the strength of his might. And it's interesting Greek here. It's like got the word mega and hyperbole in there. Hyper 
I can't even say it, mega hyperbole, mega hyperbole, power, power, power. God is expending. All of this has been come about, the strength of his might, and talking about how all this power of God was brought about in Christ for his resurrection and his exaltation, that Jesus was the demonstration of God's power on an unbelievable scale. It sounds simple. Well, he came back from the dead. Okay, well, that's not so simple, first of all. Uh, the other part is that it was the working of power that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't just, oh, well, now we have salvation. It was the whole correction of the universe. Romans says that all creation was subjected to futility. Nothing works the way it's supposed to work. It isn't just us that needed fixing. The whole universe had fallen. And the whole universe has been corrected, redeemed, and will be restored through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we have that power being expended. You have this word, verse 20, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but Paul invented a word. It's the only place we see it in the Greek, heavenlies. Now, a lot of the translations will say heavenly places. Uh, But it's actually, places isn't in the Greek. Paul invented the word, and he doesn't even use it in any of his other books or his letters. Heavenlies. He invented a word. In the heavenlies. And that's where Christ was uh, doing all this great stuff through his death and resurrection. And it's not just a geographic location. It's like, where is he? It's also the place of position, the authoritative position that Jesus is Lord. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's not just an expression. not just a song. It's that he is in authority. And it says right there, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now you think about Paul's really trying to drive this home to us. All rule, power, authority, and dominion. It's like, you know, he could have just said, Jesus is in charge. But he wanted to drive it home so that we'd take it so much more. All rule, power, authority, and dominion. Every crevice of power that is being exercised through society and the world and in the cosmos. All of these, every of these, are all subject to Jesus. He has been exalted. We need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, to see who Jesus really is. We need the eyes of our heart to be opened to see that we are in Christ and what that means. Let's continue on. Uh, And there's just a kind of a side note. This age and the age to come... I love the the way the Jews laid out world history is very, very simple. In Christian theology, we have all sorts of ideas of what the end times are like. We have all these names and ideas and books and teachings. And the the Jews had it great, simple in the Old Testament. It's like this age, day of the Lord, age to come. Cool, simple. I can handle that. It's a great way to look at it. So the important point I really want to highlight here. Now, Paul is talking about this great, grandiose idea of who Jesus is. He is exalted. He is far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. Where was Paul when he wrote 
this letter. He was in chains in a Roman prison. Now, if you were ever chained to a wall, you are not in the winning position. Right? I don't know if any of you have ever had to be bailed out of jail, but if you are locked up, this is not a career goal. (laughs) This is not what you're aiming for in life, to be chained to a wall in a dank prison with no light, except for a torch and maybe a friendly guard with a flashlight. Paul was in prison when he's writing these incredible words. I tell you a story from World War II. It's, uh, you know, before World War II, before Hitler decided to attack Russia, the Russia and Germany had what they called the Pact of Steel. And they had worked out a treaty, and Hitler said, we won't attack you, you don't attack us, we'll divide up Eastern Europe this way, and okay, they had a deal. And, uh, and after they had started the war with Britain and France, and, and so anyway... Uh, Molotov, the foreign secretary for Russia, came to visit Berlin, and von Ribbentrop was the secretary of state or yeah, state ministry for Hitler. And so they're having an official state visit there. And at this time, Britain came over with one of its raids, Air Force raids, upon Berlin. And so the alarms go off, and the bombs are exploding. They run down into the basement, and they're sitting in the basement. And because he's so used to uh, using the propaganda of the Nazis, that von Ribbentrop says, and by the way, the German Luftwaffe has complete mastery of the skies. And Molotov said, then why are we in a bomb shelter? (laughs) Paul is in a prison chained to a wall. The Lord he serves, he says, is above all rule, authority, dominion. Isn't this a mismatch of reality? Or, or had Paul's eyes of his heart been enlightened to see who Jesus really is? I believe that's the case. Either Paul was deluded or he saw things that others did not see. And we know this to be the case because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the visions he had. He said that were so great, I'm not allowed to share them with you. Paul saw the exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father. He had the eyes of his heart enlightened and opened and saw Jesus as he really is. His reality is based on what could not be seen right then and there in the, in the jail cell, in the dungeon. But he saw the other true reality that was really happening. Another story, World War II, it's a true story, that you had POWs in a German concentration camp and the resourcefulness of these guys are amazing. But what they had, they had built a little radio scraping together parts from all around the camp. And they built a radio. And they could listen to the BBC in their concentration camp. 
And what happened one day is they just got reports what's happening, what's happening, the wars progress. And they knew about two or three days before the guards that Germany was going to lose the war in a matter of days. That the troops had circled around Berlin. It was almost over. And the prisoners had their little secret contraband radio and the guards were listening to German radio being told that everything's just ducky, comrades. The guards were protecting the prisoners, believing they're winning. The prisoners said, we've won. And they tell the story about how once they heard this over their uh, contraband radio that they walked around they said the men started walking more upright they felt stronger they were confident they were no longer beaten down POWs struggling to survive anymore they were walking around the camp laughing singing talking to each other the guards are looking what is going on with them because they don't know the truth because they've been lied to for six or seven years but the prisoners knew the truth Paul was a prisoner who knew the truth His eyes had been opened and he had seen the exalted Christ. He knew who was above all rule and power and authority and dominion. He had seen him at the right hand. And so we come away with this, that the power that God used in the resurrection of Jesus, the power that God used to create the universe is the power that he is going to pour into us for our own glory. That he has already raised us up with Christ. It says in Ephesians 2.6 that we too have been raised up and exalted to the right hand of the Father with Jesus. That's who we are. Church of Christ, we are at the right hand of the Father in Christ, with Jesus, in the heavenlies. Final, last part of this passage. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Two points here I really want to draw out is again the same idea. Everything has been subjected to Jesus Christ. The world thinks of him in different ways. Great leader, religious leader. Uh, Some say he was a civic activist, some protest guy, some who say he was a philosopher. Have all these ideas. And they say, well, he's dead and gone. Paul says, no, Jesus is in charge. Now, my normal look of thinking is, okay, Jesus died for us and he's going to be in charge when he comes back. That's my natural human way of thinking. But Paul says here, and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, near the end of the chapter, he says, but Jesus must rule until he abolishes death, at which point he will hand the kingdom over to the Father. Paul says, no, Jesus is ruling now. Well, what I see with my human eyes doesn't look like Jesus is in charge in this world. But Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be 
enlightened so that you will see who Jesus really is. He is exalted. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is certainly above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. And we are there with him. And the second thing out of this uh, last passage is that the body, the church, listened and look what Paul wrote. Things of, to the church, which is his body. Look at this next phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All that God is, is in Jesus. And all Jesus is, is in the church. Now you may look around. You may think either, I'm in the company of some wonderful people. You may look around saying, how did I end up with this bunch? I don't know what you're thinking as you sit here and see each other. But the reality is you have no idea what you really are. You are in Christ. You are exalted in Christ. All the power of the universe has been expended by God to raise you up as he raised up Jesus. This isn't just a ragtag association of loose individuals. This is the body of Christ. The fullness of him who fills all in all. We are so much more than what we think we are. We are creatures of glory beyond comprehension. By the blood of Jesus. We just need to pray to have the eyes of our heart Open so we can see who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. To wrap up, as we come down the home stretch, I just want to draw some conclusions for you. First, let's push the right button. First, check your brakes whenever you ride through the city. Second, <laughs> This concept should not be used to legitimize a lust for power by Christians. Now, I want you to know you are exalted, but you could have this sense of exaltation feed the wrong part of who you are. There are people who think because they are Christians, they have a right to lord it over other people, and they can feel like it's their place to put everybody in their place. That is not what Paul is trying to do here. He's not trying to create a power-mad race of new people. We don't want to become bossy know-it-alls, but to realize that what we see on the surface is not the true reality. The true reality is we are exalted being because of the exaltation and resurrection of Jesus. That's the first point I want us to really draw from this. The next thing, and the final point I really want to draw upon here, is that we cannot let the world dictate our values, who we are, or how we are to live. We are the body of Christ. Christ has been exalted above all authority in the universe. And he has filled us 
with his presence. It's not for the external to tell us what to do, but the Holy Spirit should be guiding us. He wants us to become a certain thing in the power of his spirit. And we have been in a rather, I think it's been going on for 10, 15 years. I think the Christian world, particularly in North America, has gone into kind of a self-loathing phase. We've had a lot of people telling us, you know, you're not so hot. Oh, I know. And even Christian books, and I've read some of them and I've used them. And they're saying, oh, well, who do we think we are? We're the body of Christ. That's who we are. And we've gotten into this thing of saying we should always apologize for ourselves. And, you know, I was talking to some friends and you say, you know, out there in the world with Christianity in the world, the gloves are coming off. There's a new, whole new uh, fervency to atheism and they really want us to go down and is surfacing and becoming more prevalent. The body of Jesus is sacred. The body of Christ, we, we are sacred. Whatever our mistakes, whatever our shortcomings, whatever we have done wrong, and yes, Christianity has made some mistakes. And it's, I've heard more times in the last five years, well, you know, the Christians had the Crusades. Sorry. I wasn't there. I didn't ask him to go over there. I'll make you a deal. We Christians will take back the Crusades if you atheists will take back the atom bomb. The Christians didn't ask to make an atom bomb and level a whole city in one flash and destroy all sorts of innocent life. It was scientists. We're always told that we are so bad because of the Crusades. I find all sorts of bad stuff everywhere. Sorry. (laughs) We are the body of Christ and we need the eyes of our heart to be open to see who we are. We don't have to apologize our lives away. Be humble. Be gentle. And remember this, a couple of things. In response to the pressure of the world telling us what we should be like and what we should be doing couple of things. Remember that the church, the Christian church, was started and birthed in a hostile environment worse than what we have today. It was worse than it is today, back when Christianity took off like a rocket. We can't look at the world and say, well, it's going to be hard to do ministry. You know, the Lord's going to have to pull back a little because things are bad out there. No, 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 no. It was worse back when Paul was roaming around. We can have confidence that we don't have to back into a corner and feel on the defensive. The second thing is that we are still called to be the light in the darkness and a city on the hill. When it's dark out, you don't curse the darkness, you light a candle. That's Eleanor Roosevelt. In the early church, in the same era, when it was really bad and they were really persecuted, at the same time, you know what the Christians were doing? They were going through the woods outside of the cities looking for the babies that the pagans didn't want to keep and threw into the woods to be devoured. They would go walking through the woods looking for abandoned babies, bring them home, and raise them as their own. 
That's what the church of Jesus Christ was doing when it was really having the screws put to them. And even uh, one of the emperors said, you know, after Constantine, you know, Constantine was the first openly Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. But afterwards, they had some emperors who went backwards, and one of them was called Julian the Apostate. And I love the name, Julian the Apostate. Why not just call him a really nasty, snarky guy? Julian the Apostate was an unbeliever trying to return Rome back to the pagan worship. But he said and noted the Christians care for not only their people, but ours. Someone who didn't even want Christianity to exist had to look at the church and say, they care for our people better than we do. The church was the light in the darkness. And so we come back and wrap up and end with this final thought where we started. Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be opened that we would have a spirit of revelation of who Jesus really is and who we are in Christ. You have no idea the glory coming your way. It's beyond comprehension. Let's pray together. Lord God, I just thank you for this great word from the great apostle Paul. I thank you that we can have hope. I thank you that you have given us something to hang on to. We are not alone in this. The almighty king of the universe has called us and given us glory and has expended his power that we might live and live abundantly. So in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the world that we are in, Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Help us see who we are in Christ. Help us to not be beaten down and worn down and torn down. But help us, Lord, instead to be having a spirit of power, of courage, of wisdom. And help us, Lord, to be the body you called us to be. Help us to be strong and gentle. Help us to be wise and meek. It is in your power to make us into the people that we long to be, that you long for us to be. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.